Romans chapter 8 today, we'll be focusing on particularly verses um, 31 through 34, and then we'll finish up this uh, glorious chapter um, next week. So the year before Levi was born, um, when Ashley was pregnant with Levi, the company that I was working for and the role that I had at that company was one um, in sales. And so every year, the top sales people um, would win a president's club trip if you um, sold a certain amount and met certain goals and things like that. And I uh, won that trip one year, and it was a trip to Maui, which is a big deal. And so Ash and I got to go to Maui, to Hawaii, um, with kind of our baby moon was how we phrased it. And I was able to play that card for the entire trip, like got like a better room, like all these things uh, because we played that, that, that card. But one of the things that they always say top five things to do um, if you are in Maui is to get up and to drive up to uh, an old volcano um, which, if I can say this right, is called Haleakula. Did I get that right? So, no one knows. I can say whatever I want to say right now, and you just shake your head in agreement. Um, but Haleakula is an old volcano that overlooks Maui, and always is recognized as one of the top five most beautiful sunrises in the entire world. And so, we got up. You have to get up at like 2 a.m. to get up there. And so we did that. And when you get up there, it's like 10 below before the sun comes up because you're so high up. And then as the sun comes up, it goes from like 20 below to 70 in seven minutes. And so you're there, you're shivering, you're with this blanket, you got up at 2 a.m. You probably fought half the way up, way up there because it is 2 a.m. And you're there waiting for this majestic moment, thinking in your mind, is it going to be worth it? And it is. It is the most glorious thing you could ever imagine uh, to watch the sun rise, the sun come up in that moment. And then like after 10 minutes, you're like, okay, now it's hot, let's leave. Um, and so, but it's beautiful. And some of you have had similar experiences where maybe you've climbed a mountain to see a view. My um, oldest daughter is with us this weekend to help celebrate Levi's birthday. And she lives in um, Colorado, which has a ton of great mountains to climb and great views to see, and so she's constantly on the weekends going to certain summits and seeing beautiful views and sending back pictures to make us jealous that all live here in Alabama. And so um, climbing a mountain and seeing a beautiful peak or a summit, that's what happens in Romans chapter 8 when we get to the verses that we are covering the next two weeks. What a magnificent chapter this has been. We've said from week one, scholars often refer to this as the greatest chapter in the greatest letter, in the greatest book in human history. We saw last week, Romans 8, 28, which some call the greatest verse in the greatest chapter. And the, the, the end of this tremendous chapter reminds us what a glorious conclusion we have to uh, the beautiful things that we've been walking through in Romans chapter 8. So let's read 31 through 39, and then we'll come back and we will uh, just focus on 31 through 34 today, and then we'll finish up next week. I'm going to put these on, even though I feel like I don't really need them, but... I don't want to blur words together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who then shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we could just like say amen and go home, right? Not going to happen, but we could do that. I could just say get your popcorn ready as we go through this text. Some of you will get that, some of you won't. Here is why... One of the primary reasons why Paul's words in this text are so crucial. I want you to hear me carefully on this. One of the primary reasons that Paul's words are so crucial in these verses that we just read is this. What you think and believe about how God feels about you impacts every layer of your life. What you think and believe about how God feels about you. Okay, we'll talk about who God is and all that. But in this moment, in this text, what you think and feel about how God feels about you impacts every layer of your life. If you believe that God is a tyrant that is ready to lash out and disrupt your life on a whim, it impacts everything about your life. If you believe that God is some type of kind of grandfather figure that is kind of cool and you kind of love him, but he's kind of irrelevant and he doesn't really know a lot about you or is not concerned really about you, then that impacts every aspect of your life. If you believe that God is some type of Santa Claus figure that's keeping this list of the good and the bad and the naughty and the, the do and the don't and that he is going to react on that, and your blessings are based on where you're at on that list, it's going to impact everything about your life. If you believe that God is some pleasant old man who kind of tolerates us but does not really like us, that he says he loves us but he really don't really like us, if you believe that about God, it impacts everything about your life. Your view of how God feels about you shapes every component of your life. It shapes the life choices that you make. It shapes your daily decisions. It shapes how you parent. It shapes your marriage. It shapes your relationships. It, it, it shapes your time with God, whether you spend time with Him or not. It impacts your relationship with sin and temptation. How you view, how God thinks and feels about you impacts every component of your life. And so when Paul brings us to this climax, which again, his whole chapter is about the hope and assurance of the child of God, he does so by asking us these five rhetorical questions that have an answer, but the answer is just implied. There's no like discussion about it or debate about it. It's just a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is? It's like... You ask it, but there's not really an answer. Like, I don't know if a word is misspelled in the dictionary. How do we know it is misspelled? Are you tracking me? 
If it's misspelled in the dictionary, how do we know it's misspelled? Why do we say something is out of whack? What is a whack? Does anyone know what a whack is? Why do we use this phrase? Why are they called football stands when we spend most of our time sitting in them? Shouldn't it be football sits? I don't know. These are rhetorical questions. Why is phonetics spelled the way it is? Like, only a few of you are getting these. These are really good rhetorical <laughs> questions. Why is abbreviated such a long word, right? These are rhetorical questions. Why is it if I open a can of evaporated milk, the milk is still there? It's not evaporated. These are rhetorical questions. But unlike these pathetic, obviously, rhetorical questions, Paul's five questions have life-impacting potential. And so we're going to drill down on these our last two weeks. And heads up, there's an implied answer to every question. Question one, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the implied answer to that question is what? No one. No one can be against us if God is for us. Go back to verse 31 again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? What things is he talking about? Well, bigger picture, last four chapters from Romans 5 forward, he's been talking about what it means to live out our faith. But more directly, he takes us right back to our previous verses that we looked at last week, which again, if you missed last week, you have to go back and listen to that message. Uh, Romans 8, uh, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, we sang about this this morning, all things are working together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, uh, brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. And then Paul follows up those tremendous words that we saw how Romans 8:28 only makes sense in light of verses 29 and 30. Paul summarizes that and basically says like what is left to say? What can I add here? What else can I tack on to this? What then shall I say to these things? Now, it is important to notice that Paul qualifies his question here. He doesn't just say, he doesn't simply say, who is against us? That's an entirely different question. Who is against us? Like, that's a question that most of us can answer with a kind of formidable list of foes, people who are against us. I mean, like starting with Satan and his cohort of demons. Who's against us? Well, we can come up with a list, can't we? And our list would probably include hardships and suffering, trials, indwelling sin, death, even though it's defeated. It's a foe, right? It's against us. Early church father Thomas Aquinas originally referred to the, the world, the flesh, and the devil as the enemies of our soul. So if we were to say, who's against us? That's a different question. I can formulate a list. But that's not the question that Paul asks. His question starts with an if 
clause. And the if changes everything. If God is for us, then who can stand against us? If God is for us, and here's the implication, if God is for us and He is for us, if God is for us and if you are in Christ, God is for you. God is for me. This if clause changes everything. This is one of those instances we can just put our name in the blank. If God is for Devin, if God is for you, just insert your name there if you're a follower of Jesus. If God is for me, then who can stand against me? If God is on my side, if God is for me, and this remind, as we remind ourselves last week, God is not against me. God is not on the fence. God's not waiting to see how I act. He's not waiting to see if I keep up with my behavior list. He's not waiting to see if I read my Bible this morning or spend time in prayer or make good choices today. No, God is 100% entirely for me. Regardless of what's going on in my life, He is for me. He is not against me. If you're a parent, you kind of get this at a limited kind of flawed perspective, don't we? I mean, how many times as a flawed, sinful, broken, inadequate parent do I say to my kids, particularly when they're growing up, like, Daddy's for you. I'm in your corner. I'm your biggest fan, right? I'm going to cheer you on. I'm for you. I believe in you. Is this language that you use as a parent? language you're constantly using as a parent to try to help your child understand I'm in your corner in order to do what? To instill a little bit of confidence in them. Whatever they're doing. If they're playing soccer as a four or five year old. If they're getting ready to take a test. If whatever's going on in their life, that little bit of I'm in on your side. I believe in you. You got this. You can do this. Like we understand this. Like if God is for us, like this is language that we use as flawed and adequate parents that can't step into that gap all the time. And yet God, our perfect heavenly father says to us as his children, I am for you. I am in your corner. You got this. The point of this question that Paul asks is this. If God has purposed my good, like we saw last week, and if He is for me, why should I ever fear opposition? Considering who God is, considering His attitude toward me, who can be against me? I can live with confidence. I can live with hope. Here's a big one. I can live without fear of my past, my present, and my future. I can live without fear of my past. I can live without fear of what's going on in my life right now. I can live without fear of what's around the corner. You know why? Because I know that God is for me. He is in my corner. No matter what happens, God is for me. No fear of past, present, and future. By the way, not because of how prepared I am. Not because of how clean I'm living in the moment. Not because of how removed I am from my bad choices in my past. I can live without fear of opposition because God is for me. Take it back to our verses that we just read from last week. God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified me. So who can be against me? 
Let me bring you some encouragement if you're a follower of Jesus. All the powers of hell can stand in opposition to me, but they will not prevail because God is for me. And if He is for me, who can stand against me? No one is the answer. So, big question, right? Second question that Paul asked, question number two in our text. If God did not spare His own Son for us, how will He not graciously give us all things? The implied answer is He will. He will do that. Verse 32. Paul's second question. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Again, a different question than simply asking, will God graciously provide for me? Well, without the if clause, we don't really know. Maybe He will. Maybe He won't. How do we know He's good? How do we know He cares? How do we know He's gracious? But that's not how Paul frames the question. Paul says, if God gave His greatest possession, His own Son, to save me, why would he ever refuse to provide for my basic needs? Paul provides this greater to lesser argument. John Piper calls it the logic of heaven. And here, I mean, we understand this lesser to great, right, greater to lesser analogy. Like every week, if you're here at City Church, you see usually Travis or someone pick up this podium and bring it over here. This thing is heavy. By the way, it's not like three pounds. Uh, this is heavy. I think we're paying medical bills right now for the guys that have been carrying this over here just for their back surgeries and all those things. And so you see someone like Travis pick this thing up and bring it over here. You would look at me if I was a, like a fool if I went up to Travis and say, hey man, can you lift this water bottle? Like after he picked the podium up and brought it over, if I pulled him up here and like, hey, I'm going to set this right here. Can you just show us if you're capable and able of picking up the water bottle? Be like, Devin, you're an idiot. Of course he can pick up the water bottle. He just picked up a 400-pound podium and brought it over here. It's a greater to lesser argument. The logic of heaven. The Apostle Paul points us to the cross. The God about whom we're asking our question on whether He will be gracious is the God who has already given us His greatest possession. He already made the greatest sacrifice. If I was in a position to, to give my kids $10 million, right? If I were able to write a check to say, here's $10 million to take care of school and life and set yourself up right, here's $10 million. How foolish would it be if they looked at me and said, Dad, that's awesome, but can you afford a dime? But I just wrote you a check for $10 million. Of course I can afford a dime. Doesn't it say so based on the gift I gave? Here's the point. Why would God nickel and dime us if He's already provided for us His most costly and greatest gift? And sometimes we're wondering, can God nickel it with God's nickel and diming us? He's already given His greatest sacrificial gift. This question built into this rhetorical question is really a question of value, isn't it? Value is what someone is willing to pay for something. It's the eBay rule, right? You can think whatever you're selling is worth whatever amount of money you think it's worth. But how much is it really worth? 
Well, someone's willing to get out of their billfold or their bank account and pay you for it. You can put grandma's lamp on eBay thinking it's worth $500 because you've got a bunch of memories with it. But if Joe in Alaska is going to give you $25 for it, that's what it's worth, right? Value. How much is something worth? We're teased my parents when they were transitioning over here. They were moving out of a house that they've lived in for, I don't know, 150-ish years. And so they've lived in this house and they bought all this furniture back in the day that was nice and how does dad always describe it oak furniture all this oak furniture I'm like yeah and it was awesome in 1982 but it's 2021 it's not worth x amount of dollars just because you think it's awesome oak furniture it's worth what someone's willing to pay you for it that's the value you ever been to those yard sales where you're walking around and somebody's got the lamp out there and they got like a hundred dollar price tag on it you're like, I'll give you a quarter. But it's like, the value is worth, right? The value is what someone's willing to pay. Follow this thought. If God was willing to give his own son for us, his most valued possession, how much more is he willing to provide for our needs. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if God is willing to provide for the birds of the air, how much more is he willing to provide for his children? Here's what this rhetorical question is saying at its just ground level. The cross of Jesus guarantees the ongoing, unfailing generosity of a God who is for us. Question three. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Answer, no one. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. The answer to that, no one. Look at verse 33 for Paul's third question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, with these next two questions, Paul takes us into kind of a spiritual court of law. And here's what he says. If God has declared me righteous, which is what justifies me, means if God has declared me righteous, not based on what I have done or what I do, but based on what Jesus has done, if God has declared me righteous based on what Jesus has done, then who can bring any charge against me? The question is not, can anyone bring an accusation against me? That's a different question. That has a different answer. That question, can anyone bring an accusation against me? The answer to that question is a definite and resounding yes. Accusatory voices abound. There is an array of people lined up ready to point their finger at you. To accuse you of whatever it may be. As a matter of fact, the devil never stops pressing charges against us. His very name means slanderer, accuser. That's what his name means. We read at the end of the story that he's called the accuser of the brethren. And he will use every weapon in his arsenal to level charges against us. 
He will use our past. He will use shame. He will use guilt. He will use our ex. He will use a coworker. He will use our conscience at times. Accusers are everywhere. And yet the gospel announces if we have been chosen and declared righteous by God, who can bring any accusation against us? All accusers fall aside. And we can boldly declare to our accusers, you have no voice in my life. Your accusations are powerless. They are meaningless because I have been called and justified by God Himself. Now let me tell you, how relevant is that question in our social media, drive for approval, fear of disapproval, cancel culture? How relevant is that? We live under this umbrella of trying to seek approval, afraid of disapproval. Afraid of being canceled out by something, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, or not getting enough like or acceptance in our life, and social media just drives it, right, to a place it's never been before in human history. Now we are so prone to define who we are by what others think or do not think about us, and it dictates so much of our life, me included. That we are driven by. What does this person think? What accusations out there? Do they approve? Do they disapprove? It drives and influences and shapes the way we think, act, the way we follow Christ. And Paul stands into that space. And he drives us back to the good news of the Gospel here. And he says, if God has declared me righteous Based on what Jesus has done, the approval or disapproval by anyone other than God is unimportant. Now let's be quick to say here, we hear those voices, don't we? We hear accusations. Sometimes they appear to be justified. We hear them. We hear them. But the question is, for those of us who are in Christ, do they define us? Do they dictate our lives, how we live life? When we have been declared righteous by an eternal God, who can bring any charge against us? Question four. If Jesus died, was raised back to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who can condemn us? And the answer to that is no one. Look at, again, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul takes us all the way back to verse 1 of this magnificent chapter. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, I am not condemned because Jesus took my condemnation. Once again, plenty of accusers, plenty of detractors, plenty of critics out there, plenty of condemners out there. Did you know the Apostle John said in his little epistle, 1 John 3, 20, that even my own heart condemns me at time? 
And then he, then he goes on to say, but God's bigger than my heart. That's like, that's why it's so dangerous to follow this whole kind of Disney mindset of, well, just follow your heart. Whatever your heart tells you. Old Testament says your heart is desperately wicked. New Testament says my heart will deceive me. Follow your heart? No. Don't follow your heart. It'll probably lead you astray. Follow what the Scripture says, right? Open it up. Like, understand the truth of where God's leading you in conjunction with how the Holy Spirit is leading us. My own heart is oftentimes one of my biggest accusers. But we do not live as the condemned. We live as those who are not condemned. And Paul says it's because Jesus died for the sins that condemned me. He overcame the penalty of those sins, he says, by being raised back to life. And now the crucified, resurrected Christ, having completed his redemptive work, Paul says, is seated at the rightful place of supreme honor and authority at the right hand of God. That's what that image means in the New Testament. When you see that it says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, that means He's not up pacing around, wondering how this thing's going to turn out. He's not up wondering if, if the victory's going to happen in the end. The idea of seated means that everything's taken care of. He's resting. It's completed. He reigns in absolute authority. But Paul says He's not just sitting there idly twiddling his thumbs. What's he doing? Interceding for us. Praying on my behalf. Constantly speaking to the Father on my behalf. Interceding for me. Continually serving as the great high priest and advocate. I recommended earlier this year the incredible book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. And one of Awesome, awesome book. Probably the book that has the top of my list. And I'm a big reader. And the book I recommend probably more than any book I've ever recommended. Uh, the idea, Gentle and Lowly. And Ortland says in that book that Jesus is in heaven. I love this image. Jesus is in heaven con constantly hitting refresh on our behalf. Interceding for us. Constantly hitting refresh on my behalf. Here's what that means. For me to be condemned as a follower of Christ, for me to be condemned, God would have to deny Himself. He would have to deny who He is for me to ever be condemned by Him. Those considered and declared not condemned by God cannot be condemned by anything or anyone other than God. And guess what? God has already spoken. And He's already said, not condemned for those who are in Christ. Listen to me. Again, so important in our day and time. Your worth is not determined by your good or bad behavior or someone else's opinion of you. Do you know psychology and even life tells us that our identity is most established by what the most important person in our life thinks of us. Psychology and just living life, right, tells us 
that our primary identity is most established by what the most important person in your life thinks about you. Parents, your spouse, your boss, your peer group. Whoever fits into that category is the most important people, the most important person in your life. What they think of you dictates often your identity. I'm here to tell you that if you are in Christ, God is the most important person in your life. And he tells us in these verses what he thinks of you. Here's the thought, though. What if we lived life with that belief? What if we lived life with the belief that, A, God is the most important person in my life. We could start there. And B, because God is the most important person in my life, I am who he says I am. That's more than a song. It's more than a cliche. I am who he says I am. What difference would it make in my everyday life if I just lived with the truth of this text? That my identity and worth and value is found in Jesus. And Jesus alone. I am who He says I am. Paul proclaims boldly and loudly in this small but life-impacting section, God is working all things for our good so that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. How do I know that? Because in Christ, remember he used the phrase last week, you know, here's how I know, in Christ, God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified me. God is 100% in every way, every time, every moment, every second. He is for me. The first foot God puts forward in our relationship is I am for you. I'm in your corner. That's what he leads with every single time. I am absolutely for you in every way, every second of every day. I'm for you. The verdict has already been rendered in Christ. God has already declared once and for all, I am on your side. I am actively working for your good. I am absolutely 100% for you. Even when it doesn't feel like it, or it doesn't seem like it, or you don't believe it, I am for you. And I have to tell you, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for me, why would I question His gracious and continual provision? If God God is for me, who can bring any accusation against me? If God is for me, who can condemn me? And question five we'll unpack next week, top rung of the ladder. If God is for me, who could ever separate me from the love of Christ? So recognize and celebrate the beauty of what Paul is saying here. No thing, no person can stand in the way of those God is for. So think about it today. Who is accusing you? What in your life is accusing you? What is opposing you? What is condemning you? What is pulling you back again and again? 
someone, something, guilt, shame, a past, some type of addiction, some type of secret sin, some type of feelings of inadequacy, some type of insecurity, some need for approval, some fear in our lives. Hear me today, follower of Christ. God is for you. Know who you are in Christ. Know whose you are. Know you are secure in Christ. God is for you. Now go live like it. I'll tell you the story and I'm done. Some of you have heard this story before. So, a lot of you know Ash and I's history or kind of how our story of redemption has unfolded. There was a season in my life that I was um, on a road toward restoration and reconciliation and redemption and God doing His work in me. But I was still plagued and haunted deeply by choices and sins in my life. And maybe more importantly for our text here, what other people had to think about me or say about me. There's a season in my life I wore a lot of labels that were not good, positive, Christ-affirming labels. And we could go through the list of what those looked like. Some people would still identify me with that list. And there was a moment where I was wrestling with that and struggling with it and who I was in Christ. And I was just reading in Romans to try to hear something from God from the text that would give some assurance or some confidence in my heart. And I read Romans 8.1 and it was a pivotal moment in my life, my restoration that would forever kind of mark the direction of where I headed from that point on. And that was the verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And in that moment, from that text, God said to me, it does not matter what labels any person puts on you. I have a label for you. And my label for you is, you are not condemned. You're not condemned. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are chosen. You are justified. You are glorified in me. You are not condemned. So, are you going to wear the labels that everybody else has for you? Are you going to wear the label that I have for you? That will mark your identity from this point forward. And it wasn't some weird like God spoke from the clouds to me. It was God the Holy Spirit doing His work in my heart, in my life, in conjunction with the text, the voice of God on written page to say, Devin, know who you are. Know who you are. I know what you've done. I know where you've been. I know what others say about you. But I want you to know who you are in me. Know who you are in me. And I want to tell you, that moment in that season of my life set us on a trajectory and on a path toward a redemption and a, a grace and a restoration process that has enabled us to be able to step into spaces that we never thought would ever be possible for us again. 
and to be able to allow God to do his work through our broken story, through our story of redemption, and to speak into the lives of many of you that sit in these seats, right? That have had similar stories, similar life experiences, similar places of life that have said, we get it, like we identify with you. I've been there. Some of you are there. And God gives us this platform, no matter what it looks like, to be able to say to you, know who you are in Christ. God is for you. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, what others are calling you. Know who you are in Christ. Turn to Him. Run to Him. Find your identity in Him. He is enough for you, City Church. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one.